0: Welcome back to A Better Story Podcast. Thanks for hanging in there over a longer than expected break. A one-month break from the podcast turned into a three-month break from the podcast after moving, traveling a bunch for work, and then just a bunch of general life adjustments. But I'm super excited to be back with you. And now that I'm back, I also have a new logo thanks to designer Lee Thomas. I never really loved the old logo, and so I reached out to Lee for a little bit of help. Uh, I explained sort of what I was going for in the podcast and how I have a hard time getting that into any one particular image, and she came up with this really cool kind of blobby thing uh, that I love that was inspired by her, and this is her words, thinking about how our faith journeys and stories are constantly evolving and end up looking a bit different than what's expected or typical. So I love that description, and I love her design. I think it describes my faith journey pretty accurately. It's not this nice, neat, kind of well-rounded thing that I thought it was going to be. It's got some wear and tear on it in some ways that I really like uh, and that have led to something that I'm deeply appreciative for and never expected. So huge thanks to Lee Thomas for that. If you're in need of some design work, check out LeeKThomas.com. She's creative, really great to work with. Uh, cannot recommend her enough. Someone else I cannot recommend enough is today's guest, Cindy Wong Brant. Cindy came on today to talk about parenting and specifically how to nurture a healthy, loving, open-minded faith and spirituality in kids. Uh, this is a really great podcast for parents and non-parents alike. So if you're not a parent and you're like, "I'm skipping this. I don't care about this," please don't. This is such a good conversation. Uh, Cindy is so insightful. So thoughtful, I think you'll resonate with her story. Cindy is the host of the Parenting Forward podcast, so if you're into what she's saying, that's a great podcast to check out. Uh, She also has a book by the same name, Parenting Forward, coming out this February, so be on the lookout for that book. You can catch her writing a little bit more uh, on her blog and her website, cindywords.com. You can also check out a Facebook group that she runs, which is really amazing. Uh, It's called Raising Children Unfundamentalist. It has over 13,000 members who are in the process of having the same conversation that Cindy and I are having today, talking about what it looks like to nurture a healthy, loving spirituality in kids. And lastly, uh, make sure to check out Cindy on Twitter. She is thoughtful, funny, sharp, just a really great Twitter follow. So after all that, enjoy the conversation with Cindy Wong Brandt. We'll be talking about parenting. And full disclosure, I am not a parent. So if I ask just a stupid, ignorant question or do the terrible comparison of like, my pet to a child, please just stop me and be like, no, that's. Do you have a
1: dog? Tell me you have a dog. I
0: do have a dog. Yes.
1: Yay! But
0: that doesn't make the comparison any more appropriate. I don't think so. um well,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: so feel free to to correct any just uh, no problem. Just ignorant comparisons that I may have. Um, but before we get into some of the the wisdom that you've gained, um, parenting and mm. curating conversations around parenting. I'd love to hear, and for listeners to hear, a little bit about your backstory, um, how you were raised, where you were raised, kind of the religious, emotional environment, because I'm assuming that has probably affected how you parent and what you're going for as you parent.
1: Right. Oh, my goodness. I think so much of parenting is influenced by the way you are parented. A lot of people in the, my parenting crowd, they're not parents themselves, but I think they find benefit in the parenting conversation because it's so much about um, sort of finding healing from your own childhood wounds, which I think we all kind of have, right, to some degree or another. Um, so yes, I absolutely think that the way we were raised impacts the way we parent. I um, was raised to irreligious parents. I was born to irreligious parents, and um, I was born in Taiwan, and I live a very, <clears throat> what I call, third culture life. And, um, Yeah, because I was born and raised in Taiwan. But when I was uh, in fourth grade, we actually immigrated to Australia. Um, And then after three years of that, we came back to Taiwan. But my parents sent me to a school for missionary children, which is kind of the equivalent of like a private Christian school in America. Um, And so from 12 years old on i was completely immersed in that conservative evangelical environment so i have a lot of that influence in terms of uh, my spirituality um, my parents were irreligious, so i still had that kind of secular influence in the home but later on they converted as well to christianity um, and then I went off to a Christian college and seminary and became a missionary. So my life trajectory has very much been in that Christian bubble um, that we that we refer to. So that was my um, religious upbringing. In terms of cultural upbringing, uh, the Asian culture is conservative in many ways. It actually matches a lot of the conservative evangelical ethos because. Like when we think about, you know, the purity culture and the the way that the patriarchy, like a lot of that works in similar ways. Um, and so to have become sort of the progressive person that I am now, I've had to resist a lot of influences that have been a part of my life, um, both culturally and spiritually.
0: Yeah, that's always a kind of a costly thing. It feels like for a lot of folks as they make that transition out of... Um... Uh, more conservative, either family environment or spiritual environments. There's things that relationships that are given up, um, ideas, concepts, those sort of things.
1: Right, which is why it's so funny when people say, oh, you just slid down the slippery slope, like you took the easy way out. (laughs) It's like, no, nothing about it was easy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, it doesn't. It it does not feel easy whatsoever. Uh -uh. Um, What was it for you that sort of began to have some of those things shift and for your spirituality to change and your faith to change?
1: I think when it was, when I started to emerge from that Christian bubble, um, because I am a woman and I am an Asian. And so as I stepped out of that Christian bubble, I began to realize, wait a minute, why am I not treated the same as other people because of who I am? Um, and so I think anyone who holds marginalized identities, it doesn't, I mean, I know some people continue to be entrenched in their own internalized oppression, but I guess for me, I began to kind of claw my way out of that. I began to question why women weren't treated as equals. My husband and I, we both went to seminary, but when we went out into the mission field, people would ask him to preach and not me. They would ask him to lead and not me. And we had had, you know, we went to seminary together. I I, we walked through that journey of education together, and I didn't understand. It was such a shock to me, which was, in hindsight, kind of naive. But yeah, I was shocked. I I continue to be shocked sometimes because, in my own head, (laughs) I feel like I deserve to be treated like men, but the world continues to not treat me in the same way. And so as I question and doubt that then i began to also question a lot of other things that i was raised with well with if, if they were wrong with gender equality then what else was wrong and how else have i internalized something that was unhealthy um as opposed to healthy spirituality
0: yeah that thread once it's pulled can unravel a lot of different areas yeah um i'm curious uh, if you don't mind me asking where you are a missionary patriarchy is obviously pervasive everywhere but um context and and culture I know plays into it as well
1: yeah I was in China yeah I was there for five and a half years you know it's not technically you you can't be a missionary in China it's not an open country in that way and so sometimes I'm I'm not sure how to talk about that but um, that's where we were
0: (laughs) yeah gotcha were you all parents at the time that some of these sort of things started uh, to change for you
1: Yeah, actually, a lot of my parenting journey was just coincided with deconstructing. Um, So, yeah, I would say I started deconstructing soon after I had my kids. Um, We had, when we went over to China, uh, my daughter was one, and then my son was born three years later. And so, yeah, we wrestled with a lot of those things as the kids were growing up. So it's, it's complicated because... I just talked about this at the evolving faith conference it's you're in this your children when they're growing up they're they're in that first stage of their faith formation they're forming their faith identity and figuring out what they think and believe for the first time and but then we're at this stage of dismantling some of our faith beliefs and so it's it's a really tense contentious place to be at where you're, you know, disintegrating your faith while they're integrating their faith. Um, And so that's kind of how I started talking about the parenting conversation, because I was like, well, what, how, how in the world are we supposed to do this? Um, So that's what started my Facebook group, Raising Children on Fundamentalist and, and everything else. So
0: can you talk a little bit how that group started? Because that, I mean, this kind of, it seems like that kind of like blew up in a really good and beautiful way and got mm. a lot of voices involved in this conversation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I I was blogging about faith. And then I started thinking about parenting my children in faith. And I wrote a blog series on that very topic called Raising Children and Fundamentalist. And then I started the Facebook group as a way to continue that conversation um, it did grow really quickly. I think there's just a lot of us in that in in that time. I think the religious landscape um, is going through a big shift right now, And we're living in interesting times when kind of this generation of people our age, who are also parenting. Is facing that they're wondering what what they believe. They're questioning what they believe, and then and then by corollary, they have to think about okay, then what kind of faith are we passing on to our kids? And and it's just a really big conversation that's really complicated and involves uh, generations of people because your grandparents are in the picture, right? And the children obviously are in the picture, um, and so we never run out of things to talk about. That's for
0: sure. Yeah, no kidding. So you, cura- you curate conversations there um, on your podcast, on your blog, you're, you're kind of bringing together all of these voices and experiences. I'm curious, mm-hmm. have you found kind of like big insights or big patterns that have emerged as people try to wrestle with what it looks like to parent um, in a constructive and maybe more loving religious environment?
1: It's funny, when you grow up conservative evangelical, you think some of the crazier things that happen is totally normal. Yeah. And for example, purity culture, like the whole idea of, you know, the purity ring and these uh, weird rituals that people do, h- how I kiss dating goodbye, like all of that was normal growing up. Like that was what we were taught and internalized. Um, and so what's been eye opening to me is talking to people who grew up with progressive spirituality. So people who grew up denominational um, and, you know, Episcopal and all these other ways of being Christian that, like, you know, evangelicals or ex-evangelicals were just finding out about now. <laughs> and like, oh, wow, there's a different way to do faith and religion. And so that's been eye-opening to me. It's like, wait, you grew up thinking God is love and and love wins and that's it. Like, there's they have no spiritual baggage to unpack. And that's been shocking to me that it's possible. It's hopeful because it makes me think we can do the same with our kids. Um, but the other thing that's been eye-opening is once you begin to think about children and advocating for children to be treated as equal human beings, it's pretty amazing how you you then begin to see the bias that's against children everywhere. Um, and so, that's been a journey for me since I've started the parenting conversation to realize how much the world still is very anti-child and that's, it's depressing in one way, but we can't address a problem unless we name it. Right. Um, and so that's encouraging to me that we're starting to name these anti-child biases so that we can um, start to change and make the world better f- to be a child in this
0: world. For my own sake and for the listener's sake, do you mind kind of just like bringing a couple of those to the surface uh, so we can start to kind of name those?
1: Yeah. Um, I think that just in, in very subtle ways, we treat children like they're not human beings, right? We treat them differently the way that we treat adults. And some of that is a necessity because of their development. They are less mature in their development. And so, yeah, we have to speak in a different way but there are other ways that are very unnecessary. So one example I talk about is the way we laugh at children. <laughs> so you often see these cute children's videos that are being passed around, you know, on the internet and you enjoy their antics and stuff, but it's like they're they're human beings. They're not they don't exist to entertain us to make us laugh. Um, Even though it's it's really hard because they're adorable, it's like we don't see them as human beings. We see them as, oh, um, cute little objects <laughs> that entertain us, right? And so I don't like a lot of these TV shows that entertain adults at the expense of a child's distress. Like, I, I don't know who, it, Jimmy Kimmel does this Halloween candy trick. So that kind of stuff, and I'm not saying it's all wrong. I think we have to question it a lot more than we do. Um, so that's one example. Um, but if it, that happens on a smaller scale all the time, even in my own family. If my kid says something funny to me, it's only funny because it doesn't make sense to adult sensibilities. But to him, it's just his life and his opinions and his ideas. And for us to laugh at it, I think is just not dignifying. Um, yeah. So those are a couple of ways, but there's lots. Like once you start to be intentional about seeing it, like our blind spots are real. Um, and so it's, it's been challenging to open our eyes up to, to those things.
0: I um I always forget how much stuff stuck with me as a kid. Like when yeah. I interact with children, sometimes I think like, mm. Oh, they're not going to remember this. And kids are super resilient. Um, but like stuff really like you pay attention as a child you notice how people treat you you notice how they talk to you if Mm -hmm. uh you're if you're being condescended to then yeah pick that up so yeah yeah it's really helpful to illuminate
1: but on the flip side if you say something kind or do something that's really extraordinary that also sticks with kids right like i think we all remember instances when someone did something that literally changed our lives right boosted our self-esteem and so so that's encouraging to think about how you can really have a big impact in a child's life, even someone who's not your child.
0: Yeah, no kidding. That I was just thinking about this the other day. This is such a random example, but I grew up playing basketball. And one time this referee, uh, who was mm. like a guy, probably in his 20s or 30s, um, was like, give me the ball to pass in. He's like, hey, man, I like your style. And I Aww. was like eight years old. And I was like, for that to, to stick with me for like, 25 years that's ridiculous so yeah. just the way that things kind of sink into kids imaginations and uh, psyche and stuff i think is um yeah uh, i love that
1: story of. i love that
0: um so let's let's talk about faith a little bit uh cuz this is yeah this is something that i again as, as a non-parent but as someone who um has worked with teenagers and kids and youth and church settings before this is something i think mm. about a fair amount The big question I have, and I think that a lot of folks have, is um, how do we do more than just react against our own maybe negative spiritualities when it comes to instilling faith in kids? Um, Because I don't, either as a parent down the road or when I work with uh, kids in any sort of religious environment... I want to leave them with more than just like, you know, a handful of cynicism and knowing what they don't want out of their spirituality. Like, I would love to leave them with something positive and beautiful and constructive. So um, where do you start with that gigantic conversation? Okay.
1: First, you have to understand that your spiritual baggage is not going to be the same as your children's. Um, I think that's something so many of us miss because we assume that the things that we react against our faith is the same things that our children are going to react against, and it's not. And one positive thing is that the reason they're not going to react against this is because it's changed. The landscape has already changed for them. Um, and so, yeah, this is something I preach about a lot. We have to kind of separate that. And it's hard because, well, we are who we are and we're gonna react um, instinctively um, in our family environment. And But I think just being aware of it and being intentional of sort of owning your own spiritual baggage is really important. Um, and so, yeah, I think when you when something happens, when your child says something about God or faith that um, triggers you, um, then that's, it's a good sign that, okay, that's triggering something that's in your spiritual baggage and your past. And to think about, okay, well, is this something that's important to talk about with your kids because you're just dumping your garbage out on them? Or is it something that's worth talking about? Um, So that's, That's one thing that I would say. Uh, Another thing is I feel like a lot of people understandably are angry and bitter and cynical. Um, And so they react to a lot of the, um, yeah, just conservative Christianity, right? You're you're upset and you just want to lash out in anger. And even, even though that's justifiable, I always think that the best way, the best revenge is a life well lived, right? Like for all the people who tell me that I'm a heretic, that I am sliding down the slippery slope, that I'm living in this life of immorality. Like I want to show them not by just screaming back at them. I want to show them, no, look, I am living a healthy beautiful life filled with people that you don't ever get to know because you're not willing to set aside your bigotry. (laughs) Right. So, okay. Slightly passive aggressive there.
0: (laughs) I mean, Hey, (laughs) but the shoe fits.
1: But I think that's, I think that's, um, I don't know. That works for me. That's life giving for me. Um, I'd rather focus more on making my life shine. It's kind of funny. I'm going back to my evangelical lingo. Like, I'm, i want to be a testimony and a witness of <laughs> <A> progressive faith <laughs> you know and and so i think maybe if we lived our lives more that way we would be able to influence our kids to see that hey just live the best life that you can and um that's that's the best argument than any yeah. other you know negative yeah. rants on twitter
0: <laughs> yes. It's very easy to do those. Yeah. The, I mean, again, just to go back to like some quote unquote biblical language or roots, like the, the fruit of um, yeah. a faith or a life is, is the best part of it or it tells you the kind of quality of, uh, of what you're doing, I guess. Yeah. I'm curious. I have all sorts of questions in my mind and all sorts of different ways to go. Um, What, when you think about you personally as a parent and raising your kids uh in a spiritual or religious environment what's your what's your end goal so to speak cuz i was given all these different end goals growing up like as a kid it was uh don't go to hell like that was number yeah, 1 right. uh and then as i moved out of that environment into like kind of a moderate environment it was like um, just having faith stick with kids was a big thing and so that they would carry on faith the next generation and that's fine that's uh, it's better than hell i guess but it's still Mm -hmm. like i kind of wrestle with that a little bit so i wonder as you think about um parenting and spirituality what are you shooting for
1: yeah um i think the if there's anything we've learned having traveled the kind of spiritual trajectory that we've been on is that faith is so fluid right um and so Uh, it's hard to have an end goal for kids to have some kind of target for them to shoot towards because we don't know what kind of life experiences they're going to have. We don't know how their spirituality is going to change. And we don't know how the religious landscape of the world they're going to live in is going to look like. Um, And so I think that... I think that the um, the big mistake so many of us have made is that we've made the institution uh, more important than the human being. And so I think when we talk about faith sticking in kids, a lot of times we're thinking about that institution. We're thinking about how can we make the child conform to the institution. But I think what's much more important is helping empowering our children To be resilient enough so that they can face all of that. They can face their own shifting spirituality and the shifting landscape of religion um, in the world that they're going to live into. And so, I guess, my goal for my children's spirituality is making sure that they always have that freedom to. to explore their own inherent spirituality and to be able to think critically enough to respond to the landscape of their time. Um, So yeah, those would be the two goals. And, And that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. That doesn't mean freedom, spiritual freedom for them and healthy spirituality doesn't mean it's totally hands off and we just let them do whatever they want and explore whatever they want, because the reality is there are so many forces in our world that's actually trying to keep them from having that freedom, right? So for example, if you have daughters, the world in so many ways, both within religion and outside of religion is trying to limit their autonomy, saying that they can't be themselves, they can't be, they have to dress a certain way, they have to act a certain way. Right, and so I think as parents, our responsibility is to kind of fight against those obstacles for our children, and clearing sort of clearing the path so that they can exercise their inherent spirituality and their autonomy. Um, so yeah, it's actually hard work, but but I think what helps is to think, okay, we're not. Directing our energies into changing our child, we're making the world more kind for them. I just think that that that's an important shift because we don't want to have power over our children, but we can empower them into living um, fully themselves. So,
0: yeah, I mean, that's way less coercive and much more loving, at least by my understanding of love. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that would just, I would imagine that would instill, uh, a much more grounded sense of identity in a person yeah. as opposed to like trying to direct their faith or their personhood in a particular direction. Right, right, right. Um, the way you talk about that's really helpful because then it, to me, it broadens the the conversation beyond um, just parents as a non-parent uh, because clearing out that path, providing sort of freedom mm-hmm. for them uh, is a, it's a job for everybody. That's right. So I'm curious, um, I think a fair amount of listeners probably don't have kids um, mm-hmm. for various reasons. Yeah. What insight do you have for non-parents? Like, How can we support uh, parents on this journey of clearing out uh, space, of nurturing kids in a loving, spiritual way?
1: Uh, I love that you asked this question. I think get into, join my group. Join the parenting group, and especially for men. Like I want to recruit more men into this conversation because so often the parenting conversation is relegated to mommy bloggers with an all-women audience. And that just doesn't make any sense to me because parenting is raising human beings (laughs) and it should be an equal task for both men and women. And we need all the help we can get to, like I said, if our goal is to make the world more kind for our children, then we need everybody in on this. Because as much as parents might try to instill confidence in our children and empower them, as soon as they walk out that door, they have to contend with the world. Um, And so, yeah, so I think the first thing I would say to non-parents is jump in on these parenting conversations. Talk to parents, listen to their struggles, understand what kids are like. Um, and I mean, it's just like any other justice conversations we talk about, right? The, the first step is always to listen really well. Um, and then non-parents have so much to teach parents about parenting because you can see things in our kids that we don't see because we're too close to them. Um, And so like that referee who said that to you, like that kind of impact is something that your parents probably couldn't have because it means so much coming first. If our parents say we're awesome, it's like, well, mom, of course, you're my mom. You have to say that, right? But, yeah, for other people to inject these words of encouragement and 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 ways of just treating them like human beings, like that's going to make all the difference in the world. And so, yeah, I would just say, what are what are the ways that you're investing in children and loving them and treating them with equality um, will make make a big difference,
0: yeah, absolutely. Changing gears a little bit. This is something that um I wrestled with working with kids and youth in a church setting, and so I'm I'm guessing that parents wrestle with this as well. Mm-hmm. And that's talking about and teaching scripture and stories from scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, I was taught scripture in a very literal way, yeah, which very much fit with like my development as an eight nine ten year old. I was right. thinking very concretely, so it made sense that these uh, stories are very concrete. But I realized, and a lot of people have realized, that those very literal concrete readings of scripture can produce some very toxic environments and very unhealthy outworks or outcomes uh, for faith. So how do you talk about scripture with your kids in various developmental stages?
1: Yeah. So one thing I've learned doing this work from child development psychologists is the word scaffolding, which you may know. And that just means that While they're developing, you build up these structures to help them understand the world as it is. But the goal is for the scaffold to fall away so that they can take ownership of what they're learning. Um, And so when it comes to scripture, I would just say that I don't recommend lying to your kids ever. Right. And that includes like even with like Santa and tooth fairy, like I don't wanna be a Debbie Downer, I think there is a way to do Santa and tooth fairy and sort of retain that magic of childhood, but you don't have to state it as fact. So I think similarly with biblical stories, you, you don't have to, like I would, if I didn't believe, let's say, um, that a man was actually swallowed by a whale for three days, like I'm not gonna tell my kid that this is a true historical story. But I can still tell the story and just let them sort of be open to their own interpretation. And if they take it literally because they're in that development, then sort of make space for that. Like, it's okay because that's where they're at. But don't also set yourself up so that you have to later tell them, oh, well, mommy lied about that. Um, It's not actually a true story. This is how you're supposed to think about it as an allegory. Right. Like and so, you know, I think maybe just open, make it open enough, um, introduce a story and just let let the child interpret the way they want to and affirm that affirm, whatever they think. If they think it's concrete, then it's like, okay, yeah. And, but then this is the scaffolding part as the child grows and the scaffolding falls away, you can begin to introduce, okay, well, there are different ways to tell a story. You can introduce the idea of genres and how, um, there's fiction and there's nonfiction and there's poetry and there's hyperbole and metaphors and um, and then and that way they can step into that right. They can be like, okay, yeah, I used to think of it concretely, but there are these other ways of thinking about story and how can I then reinterpret the way that I see the story and make space for that, which is something we weren't allowed to have, right? We weren't allowed to have space to reimagine the way we read Bible stories. So we, let's not repeat that mistake with the kids. We want to make sure that they can grapple with stories. And and also the fact that fiction has truth, right? Like just because the story is fiction doesn't mean it's untrue. Um, so yeah, those conversations come in later. So how can we scaffold their understanding so that they can grow into that um, as they're developing?
0: Yeah, that's so helpful. And kind of underlying a lot of what you said or what I heard um, was kind of wondering with kids. I had yeah. a co-pastor I pastored with who oversaw our kids' ministry in a church I worked at, uh, and that's what she would do. She would just at the end of a story <clears throat> excuse me at the end of a story, she would just ask, you know I wonder how this is sitting with you I wonder what you think about this story yeah and giving the kids the freedom to sort of think their own thoughts about a story
1: yeah, and being willing to learn from them because they oh will gosh, they yeah. will come up with insights that we've never heard of and that's one thing about kids is i want to jump back to the earlier question that you asked about whether or not we want kids faith to stick with them like i don't want i'm not concerned about faith sticking with kids the way that i used to be and the fundamentalist way of thinking like oh i want to make sure they stay on the narrow path and stay a christian and like it doesn't matter if my kids grow up to not choose the christian tradition i'm okay with that But I am concerned about helping my kids not lose some of the things that is beautiful about childhood, which is stuff like curiosity and imagination and the sense of wonder, right? So like, I kinda want those things to stick with my kids um, because we need that sense of creativity, right? Even in adults, I think that's what breathes life into our society. And so, yeah. So I do think about how how do we, because I think so many in so many ways the world takes that away from us. It j makes us jaded, right? And so, um, how can we combat that and make it last as long as we possibly can? (laughs) Uh, So I do want that to stick.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and that if that, if you would even consider that an agenda for a child, that seems like a very loving and and helpful agenda. Cause I assume no parent has no hopes or dreams for their kids. Like that's that's obviously something you want for your children.
1: No, we do. And we have values. We do have values. I think a lot of times we think, Oh, we've deconstructed all our values and that's just not true. Like we have values. We do want our children to, to hold on to and that's okay.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, One of the things that I have struggled with, uh, again, in talking to to kids and teenagers in particular about faith, is their big questions about life and death, and especially hell. Um, Because the more I think about, I mean, I was, I don't remember the first time I was taught about hell. I remember the first time I remember uh, hearing about hell, but I'm sure I heard about it before that. I think I was six years old. It was that kind of classic fundamentalist or evangelical setting where... Uh, It was laid out to me that I was a horrible six-year-old sinner. Uh, I wasn't quite sure why, but I took their word for it. Yeah. And that I was going to suffer forever if I didn't uh, pray a certain prayer. Mm -hmm. And while I have empathy for the folks who who taught me that or said that, understand why they felt like they needed to do that. um, Yeah. I think that's, that's spiritual and emotional abuse to kind of dangle that in front of a kid and say, Yeah you could suffer forever, uh, consciously if you don't actually say these words or believe these things. So do you, how do you talk about death, uh, afterlife, hell punishment? That's such a huge question, <laughs> but take that wherever you, you want. Yeah, I do think
1: it's child abuse to say that. And it happened to me too. And I had to live through that and, and I'm still unpacking that spiritual baggage and having to manage it. So I absolutely kind of advocate against I advocate against evangelizing children in general, and especially evangelizing them using the threat of hell. I think is reprehensible. Um, so yeah, and and precisely because of what you said, because then your inter- your relationship with God is introduced by fear. And once it begins that way, it's almost impossible to start an, in a new way. Like it really is. <laughs> yeah. And I say that from personal experience because for me to not think of God as a, the angry God, that kind of God, it, it's it's so hard because for years and years of my most formative, you know, life, growing up years, that's what I associated God with. Um, so I, I I tell, I honestly, I don't believe in hell. I don't believe it exists. At least the popular version of what we think of hell as. I don't think it exists. I don't think there's eternal conscious torment. Um, so that's, I tell that to my kids matter of factly. It doesn't exist. You don't have to be afraid of eternal conscious torment. I'm, it's interesting, I'm working on a blog post right this minute that's called Deconstructing Heaven. <laughs> because I think that we often talk about the harmful beliefs about hell, but we don't talk about sort of the harmful beliefs about heaven. (laughs) So, but I don't know if my thoughts are formed fully enough to talk about it on this podcast.
0: (laughs) That's fair. We can uh, direct listeners to check that out later once it's up. But I can,
1: Um, I can, I got permission from my friend Kay, Kay Bruner. I don't know if you know Kay Bruner. she's she's also a blogger and she is a counselor therapist but she recently lost her 28 year old daughter to an accident yeah and this happened just in july so it's very recent and i met with her while i was on my trip back in the states um just this past month and so i was able to sort of process a little bit of that grief but she has a granddaughter, this daughter that, that died, um, survived by a two-year-old. And so I asked Kay, "What? how have you been talking to your granddaughter about the death of her mom? And this is what she said, and I loved it. She says, she tells her, mommy died, her body stopped working, she cannot come back. Um, and so I think that Um, we have to be um, as truthful as we can with children when we talk about death. Uh, We have to give them the facts um, instead of some euphemism. And yeah, I'm not a huge fan of telling kids, well, you'll get to see this person again in heaven. Because (laughs) to me, we just don't know. We don't know for sure, right? And I know it's a beautiful hope and that a lot of people believe it, but the fear that I have is that if you hold on to that hope that it becomes a bandage over a deeper wound of your grief and that you're not able to work through it. Um, And so, yeah, I think when you talk to children about death, you have to be as truthful and honest as you possibly can And I love what she said because it's truthful, but it's also kind, um, and gentle and developmentally, uh, she can grasp that a two-year-old can grasp that and she, she can know that mommy can't come back. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's I mean, that's such a hard conversation, but I think as you're talking about that, the, the perspective that you're articulating and that, that she shared, uh, with her granddaughter, Mm -hmm. I think, uh, Would give a person tools to deal with their anxiety and their grief and the hard things in life. Right. Because for me as a kid, I remember having, you know, anxiety about death as a child. Right. And heaven was just kind of the stamp over that anxiety. I didn't work through it. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I was
0: just told, like, this is what it's going to be. And I just needed to, like, double down and try to believe that. Right. Um, Same thing with those big statements, like, God's in control and God has a plan and those sort of things. It just, like, It smooths over our anxiety and our feelings and our emotions without actually having us grapple with them and deal with them. Um,
1: Yeah. And I I don't, I don't, I can't figure out how to speak to that and say, listen, we have to grapple with our anxieties and be real and, and do the hard work. Like it's hard. That's why we hang on to these sort of hopes to help us cope with it. It's called a coping mechanism for a reason. So I don't, I can't figure out how to talk about this without diminishing people's very rich theological beliefs about the afterlife. Um, and also honoring coping, coping mechanisms aren't bad, right? Like we need that in our lives to deal with anxiety. So yeah, I can't, I think that's why I'm kind of struggling with this blog post I'm writing. I can't figure out how to talk about it because I do think it's important to talk about without sort of trampling over people's earnest beliefs about the afterlife. So I don't, if you have any insights I'm all, all years,
0: I, <laughs> that's such a gigantic question. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so interesting though, because I think, um, you know, people react really strongly when you question hell, but I think they react even more strongly when you question heaven, like, the literalness of heaven. Yeah. Cause that is like, then it, the question is where did all of my loved ones go? Mm-hmm. Um, and all of this to say, I, I think there's still really great reason to have some sort of hope mm-hmm. to me. It just gets way less literal and concrete. Um yeah. and I realized that to some extent when uh I lost my dad when I was 27 oh, and I'm sorry. um thank you and in that in that moment um I didn't really this this may sound horrible but uh I didn't have any really like sense of like heaven or any sort of like concrete that wasn't even like comforting to me yeah. at that point that's not what I wanted or what I needed Right um and yet I still had some sense that like he, his, this just is going to sound really hippie and strange. No. His presence lived on in, a, uh, in his influence in me, yeah. and who he was and the impact on the world. Yes. Uh, in okay. the, the concepts of like eternal life and heaven and life and hope, mm-hmm. um, became much more real and much less concrete at the same time. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you teach that to a child. <laughs> like that's something that experience I, I would assume just kind of brings.
1: I feel like a child has their own experiences, right? Yeah. Like I am I, I definitely want to follow my friend Kay's granddaughter. Like what is she saying about what she remembers about her mom? And and probably the stories that she's gonna remember about her mom are the things people tell her. And that's part of her mom's legacy, right? Like the way that she's impacted all of this little girl's loved ones. And um but you know, I'm so surprised at how little. Evangelical Christians don't question this idea that their loved ones are in heaven. Like, there's I have so many questions about that. Like, how is that going to work? Like, what kind of, what age is that person going to be when you see them? And what kind of setting? Like, I feel like there were all these questions that people just did not ask. Um, And yeah, I guess that really boggles my mind that no one thinks about that so I do think that the honest truth is that it's, it's always been a really nebulous concept. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, but I love, I love your thoughts about your dad. And I, I just think that it is possible to find great comforting hope without necessarily the, the literal kind of heaven that we grew up believing in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to me, it goes back to, to a sense of wonder as well. Mm-hmm. Like, just having a concrete answer for what happens after you die is way too simple and way too arrogant and loses that sense of wonder to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I, one thing I would say about like a young child is, um, they like when they hear about a death of a loved one, they might be concerned about like if they get sick, then they might die. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I would think about addressing those very real anxieties and, um, yeah, and consult child psychologists, people who understand the way a child's mind works and how they process death. Uh, I think all those tools, there's lots of tools out there we can use to help our child um, grapple
0: with Yeah, that, that is such good advice that I feel like could be applied to any like spiritual uh, setting is listen to experts who yeah. are <laughs> not in the spiritual <laughs> setting. You know, like, There's so much more wisdom and insight beyond our... Uh, Two or three thousand year old book and the tradition that came out of that. So not to (laughs) denigrate that tradition, just to say there's a lot more there.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Um, Let me throw one more question your way. We're talking a lot about big emotions and um, feelings and faith and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, This question comes out not comes out of an experience not as a parent, but um, I was a youth pastor for a little bit and. what I would talk about with parents and what I realized is that what we were doing and what a lot of parents were doing in that setting is we were, um, as we've already mentioned earlier in the conversation, reacting against something. Right. And that meant that we were leaving out a lot of pieces of their faith that could be really helpful. Mm-hmm. And one of those was emotion, um, at least in the the version of like white evangelicalism in the United States that uh, gets a lot of attention there's like these emotional highs, these spiritual highs, these like worship uh, settings where people cry and have all these great big emotional experiences. And I had those, and I think they were relatively sincere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I realized I was leaving those out of the, the kids and the teens experience, at least what we were cultivating in this church setting. Um, and I, I don't think this is the way to deal with this. I eventually just caved and like took them to the least harmful worship night at another church I could find. Mm. Um, but that leaves me with a question for you, and just for parents in general. Mm-hmm. How do you make space for the emotions of spirituality? And how do we not detach emotions from our spirituality as we are nurturing that spirituality in kids and teenagers?
1: Mm, that's a great question. I don't know if I have to answer for it because I think I'm still learning myself, but I'll tell you just a couple of thoughts that I have. Uh, My daughter is a teenager, and she is really into K-pop, which I think she's not alone. (laughs) Um, And she went to a concert, um, and she came home. She loved it. She said it was like a huge crowd of people, the light show, the dancing, the performance was amazing. And she said she was crying, and everyone else was crying. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's like the you know, that's like a Bethel worship night." (laughs) Yeah. When I was a teen, that's that's what I went to, and I there were so many parallels, right? The big crowds, the emotional manipulation, (laughs) and that catharsis of having a common um, vision for why everyone was gathered in this space at the same time. And so, yeah, that kind of just got me thinking, like, I was like, she had a spiritual experience. She had, like, that transcendence, uh, there's something bigger than myself at this K-pop concert. Um, and so, and I think that's actually a really important part of a teen's life. I think teens are, they chase those highs, right? Um, Uh, I I had a podcast guest, Carly Gelsinger, uh, on my podcast, and she had gotten involved in a cult, a Pentecostal church, when she was a teenager. And we talked a lot about this, how teenagers sort of, like every teenager is sort of a radical believer in something. (laughs) Right? Like that's just kind of developmentally they're very polarizing and they kind of chase those highs. I don't know what to think about that because – I I don't know. I think I want to keep awareness. I don't like to be manipulated. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be manipulated. And thinking back to the way that um, people manipulated my emotions using God, like that makes me angry that they did that to me. So I still don't really like that. Um, but I do want to make space for that um, that experience. So I don't know. I think... One thing I talk a lot about is emotional autonomy for kids, like we want to honor children's autonomy. Um, and so I think giving them a robust ownership over their own emotions actually will help them, I think, guard against emotional manipulation, because then they can always check in with that gut intuition that, oh, something doesn't feel quite right, maybe I'm being manipulated, right? So I think that sort of uh, cultivating that strong emotional base and, and being able to own your feelings will actually help them against emotional manipulation. And so, but then again, like making space for them to feel their feelings, you know, if if they go to this, one of these rallies and feel those feelings, you know, like talk about it, like, okay, this is how you felt. But um, yeah, I would also just at the same time be a little bit skeptical, you um, I talk about raising skeptics. Um, So I guess kind of balance their emotional autonomy also with their intellectual autonomy. Yeah. To also kind of check with their reason.
0: Yeah. That's great advice across the board, I think, in spirituality. (laughs) Um, To me, that awareness, as I've grown in the awareness of what's happening in those settings, it doesn't take away from the spirituality of it. Like, it's amazing that, human beings can get together in environments and like focus and be connected in that way. It may not Mm -hmm. mean that what's being said in front of you or communicated is actually true or Mm -hmm. helpful, but the actual Mm -hmm. experience is it's like a miracle of existence to be a human being on the planet. Mm. Um, And to me, that's deeply spiritual. I don't know if that connects for teenagers as much, but as I've grown in that, I haven't, that's how I haven't like despised those worship experiences. Um, And it allows, I think it could allow us to go to a K-pop concert and acknowledge that that was a spiritual experience, just like a Bethel worship night would be or whatever it may be.
1: Hmm. I'll have to think about that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Because,
1: I I mean, I kind of agree with it, but I also, I don't know. I guess I just, I still don't like that Um, there are uh, worship directors who figure out which court arrangements solicits the most emotional experience from like to me that's still a little bit agenda driven and so i'm not sure how what's what's right and healthy
0: no that's a that's a very fair critique and even as i say you know what i just said i would still not i don't have any desire to go back into a mega church worship environment um yeah it's more i would just be able to see you know the spirituality right. of a, a different environment that wasn't overtly religious, but the manipulation is is real yeah. and terrifying. I think.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, such a good question. So much to think about.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your insights and for um, just kind of meandering through spirituality and parenting for a few minutes here. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I know that listeners, parents, and non-parents alike, are really going to enjoy it. Uh, we've alluded to a lot of different. Uh, places that you are in terms of the Facebook group, uh, social mm-hmm. media, your blog, you want to just run down where folks can catch up with you and keep track of you?
1: Sure. Yeah. So my Facebook group is called Raising Children Unfundamentalist. So you can search that on Facebook. I also run a Facebook page called Parenting Forward, which is the name of my podcast, Parenting Forward. And I'd love for everyone to check that out. Um, and I have my own personal blog. It's cindywords.com and um yeah my socials on Instagram Twitter I'm Cindy Wongbrand, so you can just kind of search for me in those places yeah thank you so much for having me
0: oh my gosh thanks for uh for chatting and I should say you're a great uh follow on Twitter so you're uh, thoughtful and entertaining and just the right <laughs> amount of like edgy not like edgy where it's like, oh, like you're just, you know, trying to turn people off. It's like, oh, yeah, you're just like throwing some truth out there, which is really great. So
1: oh, thank you. Yeah,
0: I'll encourage. You know, to I, I'm out.
1: sorry. I totally forgot to pitch my book that's coming out. Oh, in yeah, February.
0: definitely. That, that <laughs> seems important. Your publisher, yeah, really- I imagine, would probably appreciate you. Yes. pitching that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I do have my book coming out called Parenting Forward in February 2019.
0: That's awesome. Well, listeners, uh, I think we'll definitely check that out. So thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. This has been really great.
1: Thank you.